Hi, welcome to Timely Issues, the podcast. And thank you all for being here with us um, this morning or this afternoon, depending on your time zone. Uh, I'm flattered that you've chosen to take the time to be with us today. And um, obviously, based on your response and the level of interest in this program, it's a topic of some interest. Uh, we are concerned about long-term care. Uh, I've made the statement here that it's on the brink. Uh, and I've also used the term saving the sector. Um, I don't presume to save the sector myself, but the language is carefully chosen. Uh, Long-term care as we know it in the United States and the UK and certain other places is indeed on the brink and it needs to be saved. Uh, today, in this time, we'll talk a little bit about the current situation, importantly about recovery and what's the likely path for recovery. We'll talk about the structures in long-term care, programs in long-term care, technology and um, data. Uh, we'll talk about staff, culture, outcomes, and finally, economics. Uh, there's a lot to cover, so I will move right in. And to echo what Romilly was saying, please, if you have questions, we're keen to have them. One of the purposes of having uh, these conversations and these webinars is to start a dialogue, which, which we have inaugurated with our previous programs and to continue a dialogue about what can be done to uh, make changes in the sector that are constructive uh, and that we can take responsibility for. So the current situation is indeed a crisis. It's a crisis within a crisis. Um, a crisis by definition is an event with an adverse impact on certainly at an individual level, but importantly, organization, its customers, consumer, and its brand. So we need to talk about uh, saving and salvaging what we need in long-term care, because the brand, I would argue that the very brand itself, long-term care, has been damaged, uh, is currently damaged, and we need to do something about it. And this is really uh, just a start. So uh, as in other programs, I've reversed and expanded some of the content here, but I wanna talk first about recovery after the COVID-19 crisis. Um, the likely recovery models will be impacted by the depth of the decline, and it's worse in certain sectors, in certain uh, segments, and in certain geographies, it's worse than in others. But the depth of the, the decline, the length of the decline, and the shape of the decline is important, and we'll talk about those. And I see two basic uh, binary choices uh, for different markets. I either see, uh, see a scenario one where the segment is rebuilt and recharged. Scenario two is that the uh, sector is ravaged and relegated to a second tier uh, factor or component in the healthcare and social services models, uh, primarily in the US and the UK. So I wanna present in terms of recovery, let's look at a couple of ways that markets 
can recover. There's just no doubt that as the result of the uh, pandemic, there has been uh, a loss of revenue in long-term care centers and in among long-term care providers with some potential exceptions, but fundamentally and especially for congregate long-term care, uh, there's been a decline in revenue. There have been uh, declines in uh, occupancy and the number of individuals using the service. And there's been a decline in access to staff. So, so how do you I'm look at these that the declines recovery, and how do you project models recovery. are critical for looking at how we will recover, how the sector might recover. This is extraordinarily important for planning. It's extraordinarily important as we look at um, limping from day to day. Many of our clients are uh, making it by on uh, emergency interventions by government and in many cases by personal financial interventions. So it's important to look at how these markets, how the demand might recover. One of the models that you can see here is gradual uh, recovery that looks like a U-shape. And then there's another uh, less uh, robust return and then a slower return. And indeed, we've modeled these out uh, for the sector for skilled nursing. Uh, we wonder uh, whether or not the sector will recover in this pattern, more like a, a Nike swoosh. And I've extended this out to October 2021, uh, trying to trend the recovery in part based on anticipated access to a vaccine um, and other public health measures, interventions. But the question is, the variance between what we see here in acceptance or penetration, will we ever get that back? What are the factors that will allow the congregate seniors care market to return? For assisted living, which has not suffered as badly as skilled nursing or nursing homes, the return will be more close, will come closer to pre-COVID metrics. But the question remains, can we return to previous levels and what will that look like? How much of that pre-COVID market will we get back? <clears throat> the recovery might or could look like this. Uh, we can see these are economic uh, metrics that are used to map recovery in markets. Uh, these measures look at primarily in Europe, but the model is what's important here. And we can see this stutter step pattern in the recovery as markets open up and lock down. I understand in the UK that and in parts of Europe, uh, the interventions are returning to lockdowns. M my concern is that very similar things will occur here in the United States as we either have exacerbations of the quote unquote first wave of the coronavirus or indeed a second wave. So the pattern of recovery is tremendously important because it gives us a window into the timing and what to expect in the not too distant future. 
But for the changes we're going to be talking about, for the interventions, uh, we are, it is possible to create intervention. We needn't exclusively look to the government or look to Big Brother or large corporations to bail us out. There are small, uh, meaningful changes that, that can be made. And I believe that that's what this dialogue is all about. And we need to stop relying on pages and pages of governmental intervention, just rip it up and start over again. I've arbitrarily deconstructed the long-term care sector into structures, and I know that isn't relevant to those of you in uh, domiciliary care or home care, but structures are important to congregate uh, long-term care, which is a major part of uh, the markets, the segments. Programs, which applies to everybody. Technology and information, means of production, culture outcomes, and finally, uh, economics. So with regards to the structures, the original property, plant, and equipment, uh, accounting used PP&E before public health became, before it became a popular public health uh, term. Most nursing homes in the United States, most the, the built environment was built between 1960 and 1975 as part of the Hill-Burton Act. Since then, there's been a surge in construction around assisted living, which is why uh, assisted living seems to be the model that people prefer for structured environments in congregate long-term care. Since then, since roughly the late 90s, there's been very little uh, reinvestment, especially in nursing homes. Capitaliz capitalization has been extractive, uh, and I'll talk a little bit about that when we get into the economic model and what we need to do to fix the segments. The federal government has withdrawn fiscal support for the structures, for the property, plant, and equipment. And the result is that we have uh, physical plants that were built in the 60s and 70s that haven't been updated, haven't been significantly upgraded. And the question I'd like to ask audiences and clients is, would you stay at a Hilton or a Marriott that hadn't been renovated in 40 years? Uh, I don't think so. It's, people don't want it. It's an unattractive model, and we'll talk more about that in terms of the culture. What do we need? We need a far wider array of built structures than is generally currently available. We need large ones like college dormitories with the, today's college dormitories, not the kind that I had when I was in, in, in college in, 19, in the 1960s. We need large college dormitories with attractive common spaces. Um, my niece is a professor at a liberal arts college, and she likes to say that there's um, a battle of student unions. How can we make our student union before COVID more attractive than the other college's student union? And this battle applied to college dormitories as well. So those newer college dormitories are indeed the kinds of structures that will be attractive to certain consumers. We also need medium-sized uh, structures, 70, 80 units in a physical congregate space. And we need small units like McMansions for small groups of related or unrelated individuals. These are sometimes called naturally occurring retirement communities. 
I can't keep up with the lingo. I think that label has been changed. And the model is Golden Girls. There was a famous article in the New York Times last year about the Golden Girls being the new model. Supply studies have been all about the, the market research into what we need in terms of physical supply has all been about benchmarking. And there's very little about qualitatively what consumers want. And it, frankly, it's been about what investors can extract from the market. And the real value that undergirds development in the sector and has for some time is the real estate, which is why we have um, real estate investment trusts, uh, propcos uh, involved in the markets at all is because of the underlying value in the real estate. Telecommunications and information infrastructure is needed, uh, and clearly the sector needs access to the capital. Capital. Why don't we get what we need? Well, uh, access to capital. We, a skilled nursing center, a nursing home in the UK just doesn't have access to capital. How would you borrow $3 million to upgrade your infrastructure and convert your, your twin bedded rooms or four bedded rooms to single bedded suites with ensuite showers and bathrooms. How would you do that? You need capital, you need access to capital. And I'm suggesting that we need a new federal Hill-Burton Act modeled after what occurred in the 1960s. Uh, the other reason we don't get what we need is frankly, uh, the segments, the market segments have been too busy competing with each other. And I refer to that as eating each other's lunch. We've also been focusing on profit, not on the future of the segments overall. And frankly, we have not taught our consumers how to differentiate and get, how to navigate the very complicated long-term care environment. And importantly, providers, that's all of you, many of you, we don't bargain together. This makes no sense to me. The fragmentation in the sector is not serving us. We need to create a single agenda, a single voice in order to affect some of the meaningful changes that are clearly needed in the sector. And really, do we need OPCO, PropCo? Uh, the original model was to attract investment money, investment grade money into the sector to bring capital in. My suggestion is that there are many ways in which that model no longer serves. It no longer serves what the segment really needs and what the sector needs in order to survive. And then we get to programs. So that was all just about the structures, the built structures. So now we get to programs. And this is just to be gentle and sincere, it's just a mess. There's locational programs versus need-based programs. There are programs that focus on the community. There are, focus, there are programs that focus on the home. There are programs that focus on congregate. There are programs that focus only on nursing and exclude the other allied health or other social sciences or behavioral health needs of the consumer. And 
uh, it's a really a rhetorical question. Uh, we understand how it got this complicated. And in the references that you'll see attached to this slide deck is really uh, a terrific article that I would commend to you all called Failure to Thrive uh, by a colleague uh, who wrote how we got here and how we got uh, into the situation that we're in. So what do we need? What we need, I would say, is we need a system that provides screening and triage. Who needs what? And we need that screening in order to determine who needs what. And we need the triage to figure out, to help the consumers and their adult children navigate the system. So exactly what does mom need? Maybe she only needs a handy person to install a guardrail, a grab rail, and, and build a small ramp or shorten the steps. Um, and then triage, help grandma find those services. The second piece is we have a model now that is so complicated in part because the financial system has, has strived to control payment in order to control costs, in order to manage activity in the sector, controls have been placed on activity, which in many ways restrict the ability of providers in the sector to collaborate, to work together. It makes no sense. Um, there's extraordinary fear about being in violation of stark regulations in the United States. There's extraordinary fear about uh, losing contracts with local authorities or offending, uh, penetrating the barrier between health and social services in the UK. None of this makes any sense whatsoever. Don't fit the person to the payment. Understand what the person needs and then figure it out and make clear choices. Credit default swaps. Uh, if you've ever seen the movie, The Big Short, I commend it to you. Uh, even better, the book, Michael Lewis. Credit default swaps, which are incredibly complicated, are way simpler than the choices that consumers and their adult advisors have with regards to long-term care. So let's move on to technology and information services. The status of technology in long-term care is nothing short of abysmal. Uh, the technology as it exists now is completely focused on, with very few exceptions, there are exceptions, but very few, is completely focused on reporting recording, and regulatory fulfillment. It's not focused on staff efficiency. The technology exists and the staff is supposed to participate, is supposed to adhere, is supposed to comply with the insertion of the technology into the system rather than the technology adapting to what the staff say are their preferred models of working. So this raises the question of staff efficiency. Um, I argued pre-COVID as passionately as I could that efficiency was going to be the mantra for long-term care going forward for the next five to seven years. It's still critical, and it's especially critical given that we're about to see uh, record levels of losses 
in staff. That is to say, we're going to have a hard time filling positions. If you aren't already, you certainly will. We need subsidies for the technology because long-term care providers operate at extremely small margins, have very small amounts of cash on hand. Uh, the days of cash outstanding, uh, days of cash on hand are very small for most providers. So who can afford it? And we can't get access to capital. And my my uh, rather snarky comment, Kroger's, the grocery store chain, has more and better technology than long-term care providers do, with very few exceptions. So what do we need? We need, we need to get our priorities straight, make sure that we're placing more value on our grandparents than we are on tomatoes at Kroger's. We need personal emergency response systems. Uh, the legacy systems, Phillips Lifeline, were hospital-based. Uh, they were highly centralized geographically. We need an internet of long-term care. We need interconnectivity between and among legitimate health, uh, electronic health records, and not simply uh, small-scale records-producing uh, regulation compliance programs. I won't mention any providers' names. Um, and we need interoperability. We need something like what's referred to in the literature as ambient-assisted living, ways that the technology can actually help um, grandma, help our aging um, consumers, whether they're in their home, whatever their, whatever their domiciliary pattern is. Where are they? Can we help them where they are? Who cares? So um, the means of production is our staff. Who cares? Well, there's non-paid and there's paid caregivers. The, the data on this is truly frightening. Who's going to care for our long-term care consumers today, and who's going to care for them in the future? Tragically, this conversation in the United States and in the UK and other places has been politicized about immigrants and about workforce, work rules, uh, minimum pay, uh, et cetera. So this, I believe, is a real disservice to the demand, the need for motivated, loyal, committed carers in long-term care environments. The second question that I have here, who wants to work in long-term care? Given what has occurred with the pandemic, there's, there needs to be some really sophisticated research done to identify the psychographic profile of those heroes who really did hang around in long-term care and who remain committed to serving the aged consumers, aged and disabled consumers, the most vulnerable people in our society. We need to understand who wants to serve them, and we need to figure out ways to bring more of them into the workforce and to keep them in the workforce. We need these sources today, and we're going to need these sources tomorrow. And I have a few suggestions about that. The means of production, staff in long-term care, um, they're about here in the United States, uh, there are about four and a half, there were about four and a half million. These measures, this data is from the Kaiser Family Foundation, 
these metrics are already changing before our very eyes, and we need to watch them very, very carefully as we see how the pandemic is impacting the willingness to continue to work and the actual ability of consumers to continue to work in long-term care. It's such an important issue. Um, so what's possible? So there really are those who wanna work in long-term care. My belief is that it will take at least one generation to remove the stigma associated with long-term care. I believe that we need a federal uh, long-term care jobs act that will redirect the resources of the training system, the job retraining system in the United States is a similar system in the UK. We need to retrain unemployed individuals after they have been screened for the, for the loyalty components that I referred to previously. So we need to screen out for people who are merely being opportunistic, find individuals who will remain motivated, and we need to train them in ways that that training will stick and give these individuals a career path. So we could use existing training centers, but the final point is we need to subsidize at a federal level, perhaps federal plus state, we need to subsidize salaries as retention incentives in order to keep people in uh, the long-term care market, in, in the long-term care sector. Those of you who have been in long-term care centers, I've been in thousands of them, you know that they can be wonderful places, rewarding places, but they are also very challenging places in which to work. Um, they, consumers are often demented. Consumers have physical and physiological uh, patterns that are very difficult to work with, challenging to work with. So it's incredibly important, very important to focus on the staff and the people. Which gets to the issue around culture. The culture in long-term care, as I've attempted to depict with this hallway and the wheelchair, can be nothing short of depressing. Uh, as I mentioned, the infrastructure, especially for nursing homes in the United States and the UK, was constructed uh, 30, sometimes 40 years ago or longer. It was built on the efficiency of the staff and was built on a hospital model. So there are long corridors, straight corridors with doors off of either side and rooms. And this may be convenient for the staff and the movement of equipment and staff, but it certainly doesn't create an attractive environment, an environment which for, especially for long stay residents, is very conducive to comfort or to uh, ease of um, living. So uh, the outcomes, the clinical results from long-term care are only part of the story. Certainly in home care and in long-term care in the United States, as well as in nursing homes in the UK, the NHS, in the UK, CMS in the United States and other national services measure the clinical results, the outcomes in 
long-term care. However, I, I, want, I seriously wonder, is that really, that's certainly critical, but is that the total story? Quality, as much as this word has been maligned, is the degree to which a service is free of defects, which means that quality reporting programs, such as has been promulgated by CMS in the United States and the NHS in the UK, it's only half of the equation. The question is, what about consumer, consumer satisfaction? What do they want? Is this what they need? Is this what their families want? And if they don't know what they want, why aren't we teaching them? Why aren't we in the sector taking responsibility for explaining the long-term care sector to our prospective consumers? I don't understand it, but uh, I think that leads us into what it is that we can do to modify, to help change the environment. Finally, and many people think this should have been first on the list, but I put it last on purpose. Finally, the economics. So the direct and indirect costs of providing services to elderly consumers through organized long-term care in both the UK and the US have been short-changed. It's been neglected for at least 30 years, maybe longer. The, in the United States, the Medicaid system, which supports 65% of persons in long-term care centers and is both the state and the federal program, it's means tested, which means one needs to be uh, poor in order to qualify for Medicaid. It can't afford long-term care. The state's budgets are groaning under the pressure of Medicaid payments, and it's only going to get worse post-COVID. Medicare in the United States backed out of this business, backed out of the long-term care business, 30 plus years ago, because it didn't want to be responsible. It didn't want to be on the hook for what it saw coming down the road, which is a large increase in costs. So Medicare is only responsible for a small percentage, 10, 11, and certainly no more than 12% of the costs of long-term care. Consumers, the public, many of them still believe that the government will pay for it. When we survey, and we've done tens of thousands of surveys in countless marketplaces around the United States on behalf of governments and associations and even state agencies, we find that consumers, the age-qualified consumers, and their adult children, their adult advisors, they all think that somehow the government will pay for it, which is one of the reasons why long-term care insurance never took off and never exceeded market penetration of uh, 12%. So there's almost many people think that the government will pay for it. And by one estimate, there's almost $500 billion annually in non paid care offered by family and friends and relatives to consumers who uh, never show up on the government payroll systems or whose care is supported and supplemented by family and friends. So this is a huge issue 
a groaning economic system that's about to completely implode. There's waste, maldistribution, and significant lack of collaboration and fragmentation. And I want to make note here, especially, that this issue of waste is particularly emerging during the COVID recovery as the media looks to explain why so many people have become infected in long-term care centers and why so many fatalities have occurred, why a disproportionate share have occurred in long-term care centers. And it's all too easy to blame, point fingers at <clears throat> bad operators. The number of bad operators pales in comparison to many other segments, many other sectors that are supplemented by federal direct or indirect payments. In long-term care, most providers want to do the right thing. Most providers are committed to the consumers and the residents that they serve. This issue of waste is a convenient uh, distraction from the underlying brokenness of the economic model in long-term care. So regarding economics, here's some ideas as to what we might do. First of all, there's, it's mind-boggling that in the United States, there's no federal insurance for long-term care. This needs to be seriously adapted, adopted as a program. It would mitigate several of the perverse incentives in the United States around long-term care, like spending down your assets or distributing your assets uh, prematurely and indiscriminately in order to qualify for Medicaid. Federal insurance for long-term care should protect the assets that individuals and families have developed while at the same time offering secure, real security, not the chimera of security, real security to families and consumers themselves. Um, funding for long-term care. We need a small increase. Uh, these are my suggestions. A small increase in the Medicare payroll deduction and a small premium, a small premium with means test on parts A, C, and D in the Medicare programs. This is a, I mean a small, it's a politically sensitive issue perhaps, but anybody that's qualified for part A, part C, and D can really afford a small premium for those services that would go to fund a federal insurance program for long-term care. Make private long-term care insurance fully deductible, and more importantly, create a long-term care risk pool in each state, similar to what the Affordable Care Act did for the state, uh, the state programs to sell health insurance. And we should require participating long-term care health insurance programs to spend some small percentage of their premiums on education and communications to teach the public how to navigate the long-term care system. Because if the public doesn't get smart about this, we're going to have continued problems 
with misallocation and people accessing parts of the system for which they're inappropriate and others not having access at all. So <clears throat> the next steps, I believe we've included the discussion about the current situation. I think we need to create, in my opinion, a community of action. And I would call on all of you who are listening today to participate in that community of action, which is involved in effective dialogue and that's what leaders do. They step forward, they talk about the issues in an honest, unbiased way. And if, if you have biases, if, if you're with a REIT and you're listening to this program, then step forward and have the conversation about how your knowledge about accessing capital can serve to benefit the segment. Uh, there's certainly no problem in, in the world with enterprise solutions and profit but we need to identify and implement serious changes to the long-term care system. It's really an existential issue. Uh, we've created this system, we've created this long-term care process, uh, and it can't be changed without changing the way we think about it. So that's uh, the presentation for today. Thank you all for your patience. If you enjoy these podcasts, please subscribe and be sure to tell your friends and colleagues. Thanks for listening.